I'm, yeah, very excited about this one. Um, cool. Right. Let's just get started then. So, hi, everyone. Um, so, the reason for this is I woke up this morning to just a barrage of messages, I would say. Um, and my newsfeed was just clogged with news about Argentina electing a new president. And I'm not going to go on there and pretend that I know what I'm talking about um, when it comes to politics in another country, let alone my own country. I can't keep up with what is happening um, in the UK. So how can I keep up with what's going on in another country? I've watched a few documentaries on um, Argentina. I think a lot of people within the Bitcoin space have done the same and they keep an eye on inflation rate, but don't actually know exactly what is what it feels like um, being from Argentina or living in Argentina. We're all about um, making stuff more relatable and easier to understand uh, the Bitcoin collective. And this is about to get a hell of a lot easier um, with the launch for a new platform. Um, so I have put that the wait list in the description below for anyone who wants to check that out. But anyway, I this morning I asked Fernando, who is a friend, a Bitcoiner, the director of marketing and comms at Blockstream, and he's from Argentina. I asked him if he wanted to do this and he was well up for it. So here we are. I will get him on the stage. Hey, hi, mate. I'm Jordan. Hey, how you doing? How are you doing? Good, man. It's been uh, yeah. quite interesting a uh, couple of hours, to say the least, um, trying to keep, uh, you know, uh, afloat of everything that happened in Argentina after the election, keeping up with the news cycle and also, you know, be productive at work. So it, uh, it's interesting times for Argentina. I think uh, uh, it's a good time to sit down and kind of reflect on the last, I don't know, uh, 14, 16 hours that has passed uh, with you. So happy to be here. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you for, for joining us. Um, so yeah, let's kick off for anyone that doesn't know you. Can you do just a little intro who you are and what you, what you do as well? Yeah, sure. So, uh, my name is, uh, Fernando, uh, Nikolic. Um, uh, I am the marketing and, uh, communications director at Blockstream. Like I said, I also, uh, run, um, media analysis uh, site uh, called Bitcoin Perception, uh, where I analyze, you know, uh, mainstream media's coverage on Bitcoin uh, across uh, the biggest outlets internationally. Uh, so obviously, um, very, uh, you know, excited and, and passionate about Bitcoin, but I'm also very, um, very curious on how people are uh, talking about Bitcoin, how they are understanding Bitcoin, what kind of narratives uh, exist, and uh, try to like, you know, identify a map that or for other people to maybe uh, see it more clearly without spending too much time on it. Um, yeah, so that's me. Nice. And what was it that you were referred to by Joe? That's right. What were you referred to by Joe Hall again? Or was it that that media? The media <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the guy who analyzes Bitcoin across the mainstream media. He forgot to say my name, uh, I think it was in the Bitcoin Amster, BTC Amsterdam um, a couple of months ago. He was struggling to to remember my name. So I was like, hey, man, that's a that's a good quote to put in my in my bio. And also, uh, by the way, if, uh, 
I assume there's a lot of Bitcoiners uh, here today, but if you, if you don't know Blockstream, it's a Bitcoin infrastructure company uh, founded in 2014 by Adam Beck. So you might know Adam Beck. He is uh, he created the uh, Hashcash algorithm uh, to prevent uh, email spam uh, back in the 90s. Uh, and that algorithm um, got uh, included into the proof of work algorithm that is being used in Bitcoin mining by Satoshi. And Adam was one of the few ones, uh, the first ones who uh, um, communicated with Satoshi over email. So Blockstream has been a you know uh, an important entity in the Bitcoin space for a long time. Uh, we provide many products and services. Uh, if you don't know Blockstream uh, and you don't necessarily want to hear me talk about Blockstream, just go to blockstream.com and uh, get familiar. Awesome, man. Right. Let's um, let's kick it off because I started saying that it is <laughs> Twitter this morning felt like everyone was just, they knew everything about Argentina um, all of a sudden. And um, yeah, Twitter kind of just turned into a frenzy of experts on Argentina just because one person happens to like Bitcoin or the values of Bitcoin. Um, yeah, what, so you're from Argentina. Can you explain what your, how long have you, did you live there and where do you live now if you want to release that? Yeah, so Argentina and Malay right now is the current thing, right? So yeah. as with any current thing, there's uh, a lot of experts uh, popping out of nowhere uh, that has a very strong opinion on uh, whether something is good or bad, and what side you should take. Uh, so, you know, it's highly regarded um, conversations happening and kind of like I put that in the same bucket as uh, all the other recent current things uh, that we have been through collectively. Um, I am from Argentina. I was born there. I was raised in Argentina and in Norway. Um, so I spent my childhood between Argentina and Norway. Uh, and the reason why is because my mom uh, emigrated. Argentina when I was a kid in uh, the late 80s, in 1989, uh, because of hyperinflation. <laughs> so um, as a kid, uh, going back and forth and obviously seeing the vast differences between Norway and Argentina, how both countries were run and how you know the government was, was doing things, um, I always started to ask myself, like, why are these disparate differences happening between uh, these two countries? And uh, I started learning about like why hyperinflation does so much damage, how it kind of like destroys the social fabric of society, apart from like financially ruining people. But as time passed and I, and I grew up, I just kept seeing the same people escaping or emigrating from Argentina for the exact same reason my mom did back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So I was like, What's, what the hell is going on? Why, are, why is this such a brain drain? Uh, from Argentina for the exact same reason. So obviously that led me into, into Bitcoin and uh, just, um, you know, having a clear understanding of, you know, how Argentina has been run also before the 80s. Like where have we come from and kind of like where are we going to go in the future? That's always been on my mind. And I think today or yesterday after Malay's election win, time uh, marks a new era, a new epoch. Uh, for Argentina, so it's super excited to to talk about and whether and where I live today, I I don't want to talk about. It. I don't want to disclose that. It's, it's like... <laughs> no worries, man. Um, yeah. 
that's so is it a common as i said like i don't know a lot about this subject so it's quite good for me learning and then also the audience learning like uh, from this so is this a common trend that people within argentina will emigrate out um and um yeah escape the inflation right yeah so you know a lot of a lot of um a lot of the uh reactions to malay's victory uh in mainstream media today has been uh, a lot about hope. I'm seeing the word hope um, be used a lot. And the reason why a lot of people emigrated all this time is because they were without it, uh, straight up. Like it comes to a point where things are so hopeless in your country, you start to think, hey, I'm just going to go where I'm treated better than this. if, uh, If politicians and bureaucrats and these parasites are just going to be on top of my neck day in and day out through restrictive measures, whether it be capital controls. So they restrict what, how much money you can save in, let's say, a stronger currency like the US dollar, or uh, restrictive things like crazy taxes uh, in order, or, or crazy things like um, having to have 25 different licenses just to run a simple shop uh, and so on and so forth, right? Like it has become a business model um, ever since I would say uh, Peron and Edita came to power in Argentina. So for those people who may not know those two names, uh, Peron was a straight up fascist military general who were inspired by Mussolini and Franco and stuff like that, who took a lot of the um, ideas in terms of not ideology, but in terms of like how to how to run a country totally governed by the state without necessarily calling it communism. It was uh, more of a government-controlled entity, business entity. Uh, so as a result of that, um, everybody needed to be employed by the states. Everything had, had to be done through states. Uh, and the more bureaucrats and more like public employees you had and the more the state grew, then that's how you assert power without necessarily calling it or being labeled as a communist. But it's very authoritarian, very totalitarian. And he did that using ideologies from the left. So all of these things, the excuse, let's say, for becoming, for growing the state bigger and bigger and bigger was under the, the, the guise of like, hey, you need the state safe you need the state to provide for you because if not if you don't have a estado presente or like a present state like to call it um you you have no recourse so it started back in the 40s and the 50s with that type of ideology that type of indoctrination public schools thinking you know you need public schools you need public health there everything has to be public and run by the government for things to be uh, there for you just to even exist and um, that has kind of like morphed into this like Latin American uh, far left ideology that you see in Cuba, that you see in Venezuela, that you see now in Brazil. But there's been waves, you know, throughout throughout history uh, during the Cold War. In Argentina, as a result of just staying in that lane decades and decades and decades throughout, um, 
just ended up in, in ruins at this point, uh, to the point where hyperinflation is a thing that is normalized, that people just like, hey, that's kind of like how it works. So let's uh, work around that, right? Um, but a lot of people are saying, you know, stop it. Um, this is not a way to live. And especially now with the use of internet, a lot of young people are starting to see how people are living in Australia and Europe and the state, whatever you name, you name the country that's better than Argentina and they will see it on Instagram, TikTok, whatever. So people are like starting to realize like something is terribly wrong here. And then when Millet comes into place and says a lot of these things that are anti, uh, these policies, uh, and he's able to, you know, present it in such a clear and concise way. Um, young people, they put two and two together and they're like, no, nah, it has to stop. This is straight up uh, BS. And I think, you know, that gave, gave uh, Malaya momentum for, you know, eventually winning the, the election. But yeah, so that's the TLDR. I'm, I'm happy to go more into detail on these things, but um, to avoid this becoming a rant, I'm just going to pause here and uh, uh, yeah, take it, we can take it, uh, you know, piece by piece. Yeah, we'll pick up on um, because I want to come back to that. Um, I've got a few questions around um, how you thought he won. Um, but just going back to like the, the difference to make it a little bit more relatable to people, um, the difference between living in an economy, just say as the UK or the US and comparing that to living in Argentina. Um, cause I pulled up the October, um, inflation rate and in Argentina, it was 142.7 and the U S for example, it's 3.2. Um, it's a massive difference. I don't think you know, I can't comprehend what life would be like living in that sort of environment. Um, do you think people or have people just got used to living in that and now now maybe they're realizing like this isn't the norm. Yeah, I think um, Argentinians um, are a special breed of people. Okay, let me let me say that first because I, it it makes a lot of sense to like whether or not you you would think uh, people are accepting the status quo or not. The re the the, the truth is they don't. But uh, Argentinians are incredibly uh, thrifty people. Uh, they're entrepreneurial, they're autonomous, they're um, builders. And that comes from, you know, the turn of turn of the last century, where there's a, there was a lot of European immigrants that came to Buenos Aires, um, trying to build the country, right? It is the same influx of immigrants that uh, New York saw uh, from Europe that with people that came to like build the country, the exact same thing happened at the same time in Buenos Aires, as well as New York. Now, we all know how prosperous the U.S. because of that wave of immigration. Argentina, the same. So you could look at any, like, you know, the GDP per capita uh, rate from Argentina at that time. So we're talking late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, we were top 10 in, in the world, better than Australia, New Zealand, all these other countries, Canada that today are at least better than Argentina. They have their own problems, but they're better than Argentina. 
But that kind of like that entrepreneurial spirit that obviously comes from having enough freedoms and no state in your business, letting you actually build what you want to build, see a need and create a product or service for that need. And, and you'll provide for your family through providing through others. That became part of the DNA in Argentina. And as a, as a result of that, I would say Argentina has excelled in a lot of different things, sports, uh, film, uh, music, you name it. There's many fields, uh, tech as well. Um, so that has never gone away, but it has been diminished over time because if you impoverish your people more and more and you kind of like, you take them down the quicksand, more and more people goes, goes into that quicksand, you put them in, in a situation where they do feel desperate and they do look out for handouts because they have, I don't know, they're paralyzed in a way. So that is kind of like the 50% of the people that today live under the poverty line. Um, they do so because that's what the state wants, because that's the business model. You impoverish enough people, they become dependent on the state. You remain in power because you can get votes if you promise them free stuff. But the remaining people who have honestly fought a tooth and nail to remain somewhat middle class, they have always figured out a way to kind of like circumvent the system, um, you know, do a lot of uh, improvised activities, let's say. Um, so that is, you know, they do business outside of the system. They do stuff without really paying taxes. They, they just do tax evasion in highly, uh, you know, creative ways. A lot of times with people that are in the government because corruption is a thing. You need, so, you, so it becomes the thing where if you want to survive in Argentina, you need to know the right people. And they want to do favors for you, you do favors for them, go back and forth. And that's how you kind of like can maintain. If you're not a person like that, and this is not for everyone, the other other choice is I'm getting, I'm getting out of here, right? I'm going to a country that is functioning, that is stable, it works, where I can just have a day job and not worry about, you know, having food or being able to pay all the monthly costs. They, Majority of people just want a simple life. They don't want to have to, it's kind of like what we're saying in Bitcoin. You don't want to force people to be a trader in order to, uh, you know, protect your wealth or avoid inflation. A lot of people are forced into trading and doing a lot of things that they don't understand. They get wrecked to the process because they feel that they're forced to, because there, are, there is no other alternative. But that's kind of like how Argentina is. By no means are people accepting the fact that it is the way it is. They circumvent it. The ones who don't have the means to circumvent it, who don't have the connections, who, who don't have the capital to uh, uh, be part of the corruption, they, they leave. Um, but I think now with Millet and these ideas of freedom, liberty, pr uh, protection of private property, open commerce, uh, you know, all these Austrian things, Millet cracked the code. And instead of sounding like too academic, talking about like, oh, you need to read human action from Mises and, oh, you got to check out, you know, Rothbard's books. He made it so it's easy, short, precise, perfect for going viral on social media. few clips. And then his delivery, aggressive, passionate, like, you know, I'm, I'm fed up as much as you are fed up too. So he managed to connect those things. And then, you know, a lot of people are fed up. They don't accept. 
Uh, they have been forced to live with hyperinflation for many decades, but they don't want to continue. And they saw the opportunity to stop that with, with Malay. So how, um, yeah, how big of an upset was this? Cause he won by 56%, I think it was, um, to 44. How, how much of an upset was this? Was this predicted? Like, did you, what did you think? Did you think this was going to happen or, uh, were you just hoping? Uh, you kind of like mentally prepare for the worst, uh, sometimes because you, you kind of like, you know, especially in a place like Argentina, how, um, corrupt and how huge the government is. So they have all the resources to go against, uh, somebody like Millet. It's not only, not only, um, access to the money printer, uh, to pay for publicity or propaganda, but there's also more like putting into motion, uh, public schools, uh, people, all these people that are part of the, you know, big government, all the institutions. Uh, and, and all the networking that happens between all these public institutions, right? The public transportation, all of that, they, they really set into motion a crazy campaign where you literally entered um, a bus or a subway. And when you pass your card to pay for the fare in the screen, it says, this is how much you're paying now with uh, the current government. This is how much you're going to pay if Millet wins. So you saw that right in your, in front of you, right? Wow. That's, that's just one, that's maybe the most famous example of the many, many things that they did. But you get an idea, right? Like how insanely corrupt and illegal these things are. But since they own everything, they do illegal things without caring because nobody's going to go to jail. Um, so I saw those things and I thought to myself, <laughs> A lot of people will believe these things because, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people who are very poor. They, 50% of Argentinians live under the poverty line. Be, be mindful of that. And 10% literally are destitute. Like they don't have, they don't know where they're going to eat. They don't know where they're going to have the next meal. That's 10% of a nation of 47 millions. They live like that every day. They, they don't have a house. They don't have food on the table. And then 50% of the 47 lives under the poverty line, barely making it through. So if you then go and say, hey, if Millet wins, everything goes up in price. They're going to be like, hey, man, I, got, I know how much I have every month with the current government. I know how, how far I can stretch that. If you're telling me that things are going to go up, you know, 600%, uh, you know, like what kind of emotion will that trigger? So I was very afraid that a lot of people would be fearful and vote for the status quo because, hey, it's bad, but it's not as bad as this possibility and as this uh, alternative that they're presenting to me. Luckily, and this is one thing that I started to get a feeling of, like when Millet and Massa, the other candidate, when they were out doing public appearances and stuff like that, when Millet goes out, barely walk, everybody's behind Millet. Everybody. He, he, he is... Loved by the people, you can, you can feel it. And when Massa goes, it's all like a setup. It's all fake. It's all like they, they literally pay people to participate in these things. Um, that's another tactic that the government, um, the Peronist government has been uh, doing a lot. They, you know, if you're not their friend and they want to make your life impossible, they'll organize a strike 
and then they pay people to go and protest in the streets. These are the same people who are dependent on these like social plans, these subsidies. So they basically say, you're going to lose your subsidy if you don't appear today at this plaza where we're going to march or whatever thing. And then they get paid on the day cash. So, you know, we're dealing with like a Hydra beast, you know, and a beast of several heads and you cut down one head and then two new heads grow. And I was afraid that that government would be so like the tentacles would be so vast and touching absolutely everything that Millet wouldn't, wouldn't make it. But you know, the results yesterday tell us otherwise people were not afraid. They stood up, they believed in Malay. They wanted that change so bad that they're willing to take the risk. But it's not really a risk because it's a lot of fear mongering. Like they don't know what they're talking about. So that's not going to be the reality, but still they, um, they went against that. And I think I'm very proud as an Argentinian to see, you know, my, my countrymen, uh, stand up like that and democratically elect Millet because, uh, for, for a moment there, you kind of like thought, Hey, these people who got booted yesterday, they've been in power since 2003. So you're starting to think like this is becoming like a Maduro Chavez thing where you just, you vote democratically one guy. And then once that guy is in, it's game over for the country. Right? So at least, um, we're not Venezuela yet. Uh, we put that on pause. I mean, you will can, I can do the next four years. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Like, that's what I was going to say is the level of how fed up people are to ignore propaganda, like what you were saying, that must be insanely high. Um, because it's, if you're seeing that every day, um, going to work and going around the city must be hard to ignore and not subconsciously um, go into your brain and yeah, so it just shows how, how fed up people are. Um, yeah. And the good thing about, uh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, um, you, this is a good transition is you tweeted about it's a culture change, mm -hmm. um, for Argentina. What, what exactly did you mean by that? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's not a culture change yet. It's more of a narrative change, but I think in a cultural change, you need to start with a narrative and have people believe in certain narratives. And then you kind of like have to repeat that a lot to get people, to get more people on board. And that's kind of like what has happened now. And the first call to action was vote for Malay, right? But this has been kind of like a, a thing that was in the making for the last five, six years. Like you can literally start when Malay started to get like viral, uh, like internet famous, which was like five, six years ago. So like I said, with the, with the delivery, with the arguments, with the very simple rhetoric of very complicated stuff like Austrian economics and, you know, Rothbardian money philosophy. He managed to do that, right? So he got the attention, he got the following, and then he started blending in that into a more political discourse, which eventually gave him the victory yesterday. So the narrative has changed. It's kind of like the Overton window has moved a little bit. 
but it's too early at this point to say that this is a cultural change. I was in my tweets, I was talking about like the cultural battle. Like this was a win for the cultural battle that we need to do. And I, and I don't think it's necessarily a Argentinian cultural battle that we need to do neither. I mean, we are in a very special time in, in the world. And I think this cultural battle is a global thing. And I think Millet hopefully can inspire other people elsewhere to, you know, um, talk like that and convince more people about the notions of, you know, defending private property and having the freedom. But anyway, um, so I hope that this can trigger the cultural change, which the next steps I think is continuing the narrative and having more people believe in that. But then also when Millet is actually in power, that he can actually make some good things happen. Some good things happen that people feel so they can say, hey, it's a, it's a good precedent that we have. So it's not all talk and all argument because then you're just a normal politician. You're just talking and not doing anything. So he needs to really um, take a look at like, okay, what are the low hanging fruits, stuff that I can get done in the next four years? And then hopefully if he wins the re-election, okay, I'll do more like midterm plan for the next eight years and actually see it through. And, you know, he doesn't have that much support in the Senate and, you know, all the, all these like places where he needs to eventually negotiate and come to terms with these things. And you know, the system is built for compromising. So there's a lot of things that he has said he's probably not going to be able to do because of the system is structured in a way that forces you to compromise with people who are not part of your party or whatever. So I hope we can pick these things that are like low hanging fruits, easy to execute, but has you know, is felt by by the people. And if that happens, people are just going to put two and two together and say, the argument sounds nice and the actual results of that is even nicer. So then they become more convinced about these, um, these arguments and they take it as more than a theory, but actually something like, hey, this is, this works. Let's do this. Let's reelect this guy. And then somebody else can come and, Kind of like the uh, LA guy who talks the same thing and the people are already convinced because they had eight good years and it really put into place this project that can really drive change. Because even Malay himself said, if we want to be like, if we want to be like Mexico, we need 15 years. If we want to be like Italy or Spain, we need 25 years. And if we want to be like Germany or France, we need, we need maybe 50, 60 years. So this is not like a magic wizard who's going to just... Uh, you know, move this wand around and, and change everything for the better. You need to kind of like do it piece by piece and, and convince people in the, in the long term. So this is, this is hopefully at the start. Yeah. And that's why I liked is the, he seems to have a low time reference and he's planning stuff out for the, the long term. And, um, yeah, when you're, when you're talking about it on Twitter and on here as well, um, I like that it's not. Because what I've seen on Twitter, on Bitcoin Twitter a lot is like, this is it. This is, this is the moment and everything's going to change from now on. Um, whereas it's not really like that. It's just like, this is the spark that could yeah. cause change. Um, I think that's important to, to remember because it is going to be an uphill battle, right? Um, if he doesn't have the support of, is it the Senate you said? Um, it's going to be tricky, I imagine, anyway. Yeah, no, the Senate is one thing. Then you have the syndicate 
you have all these powerful businessmen who have been enjoying many years of, uh, you know, free money uh, from the other government. And then the light comes like, we're not getting that anymore. I cut down these spending. We're going to like remove these plans. He's going to get pushed back. Definitely. But it's up to him to be able to figure it out. That's, that's the job, right? That's his job as president for the next four years to figure out a way, give him something, get something back, come with some peaceful compromise that is in line with his, like you said, long-term plan. But let's see what happens. I think Bitcoiners are, um, Bitcoiners are luckily not a, uh, it, there's, we have reached at a, a point in global Bitcoin adoption that being a Bitcoiner or just like liking Bitcoin and kind of believing in Bitcoin doesn't necessarily mean you have to like subscribe to like these things. You, you, you that was maybe the case one cycle ago, maybe two cycles ago. But I'm definitely seeing that now that you are seeing many Bitcoiners from many different trees from different places around the world and their experiences are very different. So I definitely see a big difference um, between uh, Bitcoiners who are uh, from the West, who have an um, opinion that you can tell is very biased already because I believe it's a survivorship bias. So they have kind of like gotten to this point. They came in Bitcoin at a good point. Uh, things have gone well for them. So they're completely convinced that my way of thinking, my opinion is what led me to this position that I'm comfortable in. And therefore, uh, you know, Argentina, Nigeria, El Salvador, they have to believe in these things the same way that I do for it to be successful. So when they see Bitcoin as a legal tender, they might get happy about it. Uh, and then they get all of a sudden surprised that maybe adoption in the Salvador is not as huge as they thought they were because they thought that this was a good thing necessarily. Um, I hope I'm making sense. I'm just trying to give an example of how a lot of people in the West, Bitcoiners included, are seeing life through their filter. And that's actually fine. I mean, we're humans here. There's so much information, so much stuff going on every single day. We need to kind of create this lens for us to see the world in a way that lets us understand it, like understand something simple in a very chaotic world. We need that, and that is fine. But luckily, there's a lot of Bitcoiners who are based in Argentina or Argentina like me who have kind of like my family went in exile, who sees stuff differently and can say, hey, you know, Malay has talked positively about Bitcoin. That's fine. We we, we know that doesn't necessarily mean uh, Argentina is going to follow El Salvador and become the second country to legalize, uh, to make a Bitcoin legal tender. Not about that. There's so many other things before Bitcoin becomes relevant that need to get fixed. Yeah, Malay has said some cool things about Bitcoin. He likes it. He's an Austrian, right? So he understands the concept. But when he's asked the question about it on TV, He's going to say something positive about it, but that's it. Slow down. Like there's so many things that need to get fixed. So much structural change, foundational change that Argentina needs to go through before they can get to that part where they're privileged enough to think about stuff like Bitcoin and, and other things. We need to fix hunger. We need to fix uh, poverty. We need to fix the violence um, so that people can go to work and not be afraid of like getting robbed uh, on the street or people can live, uh, you know, have a standard of life where 
they know at least when the next milk gonna come. Bitcoin is absolutely irrelevant until these things are fixed. So you know, I love the enthusiasm, but um, we're far away. Um, I don't think uh, Bitcoin is in Millet's uh, radar uh, right now. At least, I think that's such that is such an important point, and this is one that I've seen Peter McCormack getting stick for for um, when he'd done his documentary in uh, Argentina, and he's mentioned it a few times. It's like Bitcoin isn't needed there right now. Like that's people are using; they want dollars. Um, yep, they're using some other uh, stable coin, mm-hmm. and what's needed is stability. Like, and yep. Bitcoin can't really give you that in the short term, um, because it's no. so volatile. So, right, you see the next step as like dollarizing first, and then having, if if they get to that point, like Bitcoin as the store of value, the savings account. Um, whatever you want to call it. Is that what you kind of see the next steps as being? Yeah, pretty much. I think um, I love the documentary that Peter did, by the way. And I, and I do love the fact that he, he's, uh, I, hate to, I hate the word brave because it's like so much misuse. But he's, um, he got a good pair of cojones uh, to actually go out and say, you know what, this is, this is how I feel. This is what I see. I mean, right in front of me, what do you want me to say? <laughs> you know, uh, you don't like, um, you don't like stable coins on Tron. I get it. But the fact is people are using it it's for a very important thing, like having some stability in their life. So I think that um, stable coin usage and Bitcoin usage obviously has gained some adoption in Argentina way before now. Like, like, it's, like I said before, there's a subset of Argentinians who are extremely thrifty, who are looking for opportunities everywhere uh, to do business or to just, just stay where they are comfortably in the middle class or upper middle class, whatever you want to call it. When stable coins and Bitcoin got introduced, they got picked up like this. There's, there's, there's certain people, certain countries, citizens of certain countries who are very good at like spotting these uh, opportunities because um, they know that they can't trust the governments. Argentina, Nigeria, I would say fall into these categories. Nigerians are like insanely entrepreneurial and they're all about the hustle, all about the culture. I mean, sorry, the, the hustle. And um, so they look at Bitcoin and they get it. But what happens in Argentina is in order for you to get it, you need to have some sort of education, or you need to mentally be at a place where you can understand a concept like Bitcoin uh, fast enough for you to start using. Uh, for a lot of people, usually take a lot of time to actually grok Bitcoin uh, from the first touch point, right? Imagine in Argentina where like education is shit and like it's, it's tough. So the few that has that like opportunity, uh, they use it for what it's worth. And they look at which chain is the cheapest. Let me get let me get tether on that. Uh, the important part about the dollarization is that other people besides these people that are poor and that live in the ghettos that don't know how to eat, that they get access and exposure to these dollars. Like, for example, if you do, like, I don't know, you, 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 you go around on the streets and you collect cans and you want to sell the metal. 
the fact that you can sell that metal and get dollars back, that is just a upgrade on your life. Because before you got paid in Argentinian peso for that, you need to spend it immediately because next week is going to be devalued. If you can get U.S. dollars for any kind of job, uh, whether it is taxed or not, white or black or whatever, the fact that you got a stronger currency that doesn't devalue as fast, because let's be clear, obviously the U.S. dollar devalues. It's a fiat. It's a shit coming, right? But the fact that they have time you are the ice cube melts slower. Hey, that actually has the potential for you to recalibrate your mind and say, I can sit on these dollars for a while and I can maybe accumulate a couple of dollars and then use the bigger chunk of dollars now that they got 20, 30, 50, even $100 saved up. I can spend that on a, a refrigerator or an oven or whatever. That is in. And there's a lot of people who don't understand that because they are in the West and they think, oh man, you're just uh, perpetuating the hegemony of uh, the Federal Reserve, right? Yeah, okay. That is probably true, but they don't care. It's not about that. It's about becoming prosperous without having to leave your country and your family to get a job as a dishwasher in Spain. It's about uh, opening up a business and having a set of laws that actually incentivizes people to open up businesses and employ people instead of what they have had for decades where the laws that are in place, the regulations that are in place actually taxes the shit out of you. Sorry for, excuse my French. They put in so many things in your way. Oh, you need a license for this, but you need to go there to get the stamp and then you need to come back and show me the stamp and then you need to go to the other office to get, and you're supposed to be working at your office or your shop, not go around and shaking hands and stamps from all these parasite bureaucrats. Uh, it's about that. And it's about just transferring uh, value to each other in a currency that is not just evaporating. So I think dollarization is the next step. This is what Millet has said. It's kind of one of his big promises. It's going to be hard for him to actually get the dollars uh, to, to be able to circulate that in the economy. That's, I don't know how he's going to do it, but he has some concrete ideas on how to do that, which is a little bit too technical for me to explain, but at least he has been vocal about this is how I plan to do it. So if we can get to that, hey, that's that's an upgrade, man. That's like getting, uh, you know, you, you play a game and then all of a sudden you get like a bonus kit of armor and equipment. It, it's that. It's just like instantly there's an upgrade there. So I hopefully, you know, that happens fast. People get started earning in dollars. And then the concept of saving becomes a concept that people understand. And then when they know what saving is, and then they come to a point where like, hey, there's something called Bitcoin, which is the most badass savings technology out there. They're going to be like, okay, I, at least I know the concept of savings. Tell, please tell me how Bitcoin can can be better than what I that than the US dollars that I that I use right now. That's that's when you enter. That's when the orange pilling happens. So I hope it happens like that. In rea reality is, we'll, we'll see. But at least theoretically, I hope that happens that way. That that whole flow makes so much sense. The way you just laid it out there of like 
teaching teaching the population about saving because um like i think of when i've got let's say a chunk of money i think like 10 years like what's going to happen to this money if i put it into a savings account um over 10 years whereas you're saying in in argentina you are you are literally what's going to happen over 10 days um to my money and that's such a powerful thing of learning or yeah learning what savings actually is and witnessing savings not learning what it is but like witnessing what it's actually like and then that's when the bitcoin comes in um yeah i love that whole that whole bit um right let's move on to the last bit and then if anyone's got any questions please put them in the comments and i will check twitter as well so if you put a comment on twitter um i will do that or i'll check that there but my last question to you uh, before we get on to that is so you've got bitcoin perceptions um which is analyzing the perception of bitcoin in mainstream media what what's your view on the mainstream media in western countries towards Malay? um in my view or in my um just looking at like glancing on uh, BBC News or seeing articles from The Guardian come up, very negative, like <laughs> extremely negative and wording that's used. Um, yeah, it's quite uh, harsh. What's your What's your view on that? Yeah, you kind of you kind of like brought up the worst example with The Guardian, so I totally understand. I feel um, they definitely weaponize. Um, the language that they use and you can tell like just from seeing some headlines over a long enough period of time like they're pretty much seeing bitcoin in one way only and that's it so and that is that is true that is that is actually true um and that's fine uh unfortunately um journalism today is very different than let's say journalism in the 60s 50s um that you know for the most part, back then, uh, not 100%, but for the most part, they were more like investigative. They were more independent. They they actually asked hard questions and they wanted to get like a, a discourse going on where, uh, you know, many, many sides as possible would, would be part of that discourse. And today is kind of like they did a slow 180 on this, right? They more of a mono uh, monologue. Uh, there's really not, not not a lot of different views in one piece, uh, to the point that there are outlets that aren't really um, aren't really uh, diverse in in um, in their coverage, which is sad. But um, as a Bitcoiner, uh, I think you get more exposure to the bad stuff. Um, you get like the things that go viral are like tweets with a screenshot of like a ridiculous headline or like a ridiculous commentary. And that kind of make the rounds and you see that enough and you'll end up thinking, well, to hell with the, the mainstream media as a whole. Uh, they have only bad things to say about us. And I love Bitcoin. I defend Bitcoin. So I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to react. Um, you know, my immune system kind of like reacts against it. I understand that feeling too, but I, you know, since I work at Blogstream with marketing, so I deal with like creating pre- Press releases. I deal with like having Adam back go on Bloomberg and, and and talk and and stuff like that. 
I, I look into these things, right? And I came to the point, I've been, I've been at blockchain in like two, two and something years uh, at this point. So in my work, I started seeing like, there are journalists that are quote unquote good ones. Like there are, are journalists that are curious, that are willing to also learn, right? Like they're not experts, but they are still covering Bitcoin, but they do it in a way that is like organically curious. They don't come with like preconceived notions and like trying to, yep, there are the, you have a journalist who come and they want to do a hit piece and they come with bad intentions. Yes, you have those as well. But I saw enough of the people who are more balanced. They care about the nuanced. They, they, they try to paint a picture that includes different viewpoints on the same topic. I saw that enough to be like, hmm, let me see if there's a, a, a tool or a newsletter or something kind of like does that for me and breaks it down. And I didn't see any, any, anything existing like that. Nobody's really covering uh, the Bitcoin perception from mainstream media, apart from what you see on Twitter. So it's like, okay, to hell with it. Let me, let me create that myself. And um, I started pulling in data and I've been looking at data this year very closely, but I'm also pulling in data from 2018 that I'm still, uh, that is still, I, I'm still like organizing and cleaning. But what I've learned in the two, three months that I have uh, created these reports. So I do a weekly report on bitcoinperception.com every Monday. I create a report about the last week and I have some screenshots from my dashboard with some stats. And then I, I kind of like take you through what the main topics of last week was and how that was covered. Um, and I started to see like, hey, there's a lot of good coverage still. There's a lot of good pieces that are about Bitcoin that is positive. And one maybe even more important thing is that there are certain outlets that understand Bitcoin in a very specific way and they write about Bitcoin in that way. Example, um, the more like American right-leaning publications, the Foxes, uh, all of that, they have been covering Bitcoin mining for the most part and its relations to the energy grid, um, you know, uh, how many, how many uh, old, old factories they can kind of like repurpose and how many jobs that creates. And I've seen a lot of positive coverage about that topic. And that's, and in my mind, I'm like, obviously as a, as a Bitcoiner, you think, well, Bitcoin is about way more than that. You need to talk about other stuff as well. But you know what? It's actually good that they talk about this one thing because that's their understanding. And then they keep talking about it in that way. And more people are going to come and understand Bitcoin through that angle, through that door. And that is fine. Then they can kind of like explore on their own. And then you have the Bloombergs that are like all about the price X. That is fine too. If you understand the value of Bitcoin from like an investor perspective, you'll understand the stuff about like a, a supply cap and, uh, you know, um, decentralization aspect of it, perhaps the digital gold narrative, you know, and that's another way to understand Bitcoin as well. And that is fine. If you're like, if you come through the Bitcoin door and you come through the digital gold narrative, hey man, I'm welcoming you. Then, you know, it's a rabbit hole for you to go through, but then there's many others to explore later. You need to go through the door though. And that's kind of what is crucial about Bitcoin adoption. If you want to be serious about it, you need to simplify it. Let, have a, have a door open for people to walk through and then they can take it after that. Bitcoin is not ever, ever, never stops, you know, like you can, you can learn about it wherever. So, um, 
I think that's a really good thing. And I think a lot of people should know that more within the Bitcoin community. So, you know, that's what my, my weekly reports are for. So that people can see like, hey, there's some good stuff, there's some bad stuff. Here is the lowdown, the TLDR. But it's, um, it's about like finding signal in a very noisy environment, just uh, the mainstream media in general. Yeah, nice. As, and I know we've talked about this a lot in different rabbit holes that people come down the Bitcoin from and different angles um, and simplifying it, making it relatable. So we're definitely on the same path, but just not in the media space. Like we had a call last week and I explained, please don't say anything. Uh, I told you more than anyone else. Um, people will find out more if they join the waitlist. Um, <laughs> you should have thought. It's so important that you can relate to people and meet them where they are because it's so confusing. Um, if you're coming in or even keeping up with Bitcoin, like it's so difficult. So yeah, we're very much aligned on that. Uh, right. Let's take the questions because we have got six minutes. Um, the first one is, has Malay, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Am I saying Malay right? Malay is good, yeah. Malay, yeah. <laughs> uh, said anything during the election campaign about making Bitcoin legal tender in Argentina that you know of? No, not not in the actual campaign, um, uh, in the election campaign. He has been talking about Bitcoin many times before during interviews. And I think that's kind of where the majority of Bitcoiners, they get the reference uh, from. During the actual election campaign, his, his like promises Bitcoin was never about that. He didn't mention that in the in the big sense, but uh, he has said enough about Bitcoin for us to know that he's a proponent of it. But it's not part of the uh, his program per se. Nice. And then, oh, this is a really interesting one. Um, what's the current situation with Bitcoin mining in Argentina, and what is the potential? Um, so, is there a lot of renewable? energy within Argentina? That's just me adding on to that question because I'm very interested. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, well, um, renewable, I'm not sure. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, closer to the Paraguay border, we have uh, the Iguazu Foss, which is, uh, you know, crazy, uh, big um, source of hydropower. Uh, I think mostly Paraguay is taking advantage of, uh, of that and other uh, sources that they have that is hydropower specifically. Um, but in terms of uh, just the infrastructure. I think Argentina has really, is really set up for, for, for this. I, I know that there's a lot of, um, there's uh, some uh, mining operations down in Patagonia, uh, which is the southernmost part of uh, Argentina. So you know, it's a cool place close to the Antarctic. So, you know, um, no problems with uh, things heating up there. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure of the energy mix that those uh, miners in Patagonia are using. Um, but the most important thing is that they just need to have a government that doesn't interfere. Um, and that has not really uh, been uh, the case. So I know, I know that a lot of mining operations are struggling and they're going to Paraguay with just excess of hydropower anyway, uh, and they just do business there. Um, but so hopefully, you know, with, with Malay, uh, some of these restrictive laws can go down and uh, more people can start mining, especially down in Patagonia um, and in the, you know, and near the Paraguay uh, uh, region. Nice. Got um, Susie saying hydro is massive. Um, 
within oh, yeah. loads in in Paraguay as well. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I've never looked into that because I've talked about this before. I, I'm very interested and we're doing stuff within Scotland um, when it comes to Bitcoin mining, just because there's so much renewable energy there and the grid is so far behind. Um, it's just not built out at all. Uh, so there's so many use cases for Bitcoin um, and there's so many, so much stranded energy um, around which needs to be utilized. And But it's just educating um, people about Bitcoin and you, you're just putting value on stranded energy that people would waste. Um, like I've talked to a few people who are just earthing it and they're getting nothing. And I'm saying you can... You can get Bitcoin here. If you want to keep it, you can keep it or you can sell it. Um, yeah, it's just the, the whole education piece as well. Uh, right. I think, so that's it on here. And I think that's it on Twitter as well. So we'll wrap up unless anyone's got a last ditch question. Um, but yeah, where can people find you? Where's the best place to find you? Well, luckily you have a combination of a Spanish first name and a Serbian last name. And so it's a pretty unique combination of a uh, name. So you can just Google me and you'll find everything there. Uh, Fernando Nikolic. Uh, but on Twitter, I'm pretty active. Uh, it's uh, My handle is based layer. So based layer, but a based one. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Go to base layer and uh, bitcoinperception.com. And that's that's all the content that I create. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for coming on. And like, we talk a lot and it's, we're very much aligned uh, within our views and our approach to Bitcoin. And I just, yeah, love chatting with you. Like, I think we were supposed to have like a 30 minute call last week and we went over yeah. an hour. And <laughs> it's always great. So, and I love your newsletter, Bitcoin Perceptions. So anyone's listening, sign up for that and also sign up for our wait list and to be the first on our platform. Cool. Right. Awesome. I will end the live stream there, but thank you very much. Thanks to everyone who came as well. So see you around. Thank you.